Pull yourself up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to the Energy Roundtable, the mostly weekly discussion when Lisa's not gallivanting all over the world about the news and notes in uh, in, in the energy space. And um, this week we will talk about some of Lisa's gallivanting um, and we will uh, talk about a conference she just got back from. Uh, Lisa, welcome to the table. Thank you very much, Matt. How are you today? I'm doing great. And you? Good. Long time no see in a way. I mean, I've seen you over the last couple of hours because we've been focused on some kind of marketing and media related uh, activities. But uh, otherwise, I think the last time I spoke with you was, well, maybe it was Monday, but I didn't really see you. So No, you've been a, a, a what's the phrase, girl about town or man about town? That's girl right. Town in your That's case. right. Or, or as Steve called me yesterday, I'm a jet setter. So Jet setter. Yeah, right on. Good. So yeah. you're you're coming back from where? Ipsa. Ipsa in uh, Banff, Alberta. Beautiful Banff, Alberta. It was actually the first time, believe it or not, that I've ever been to Banff. Okay. So it was a treat for me because it's very, very pretty for those of you know you have who have not had the uh, the chance to go there yet. It's uh, funny. Ips, Ipsa was also my first time in Banff. I remember being. Oh, yeah. I remember driving there, being on a phone call with our former colleague uh, Leslie, and saying, "I'm a bad Canadian. Like I've never been here." Yeah. Uh, yeah, I felt I felt I felt terrible actually, yeah. considering the fact that I've you know I've never been before. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was there with Dave Rorda, our uh, director of Western Canada. Uh, cool. So that was fun to sort of catch up with him. What does, uh, what does IPSA stand for for our it listeners? It is the Inde- Independent Power Producers. Oh, I forget the S and the A. What that stands for? Do you remember or do you recall? A, a is probably Alberta. Um, yeah, what's the S? Producers. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we we should we should know, but uh, we, I'll, should, I'll, we should know that. Should Independent know. Power Producers Society of Alberta. Society of Alberta. Society of Alberta. Okay, Thank excellent. Thank that, you. That's uh, that's our 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 producer Mark Charbonneau chiming in. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, but you know, as as it you know the the conference name might suggest, there are a lot of different IPPs there, uh, a lot of different end users. Uh, it was a great conference because, you know, we are in the middle of this energy transition, which everybody was referring to during the conference. Um, so there's an exhibitor section and then there's, you know, various speakers that are coming from all, I will call it walks of life and different companies. I mean, you have Transalta there, you have Capital Power there, you know, some of the normal people, you have some um ex-politicians like it's really fascinating like you know the group of people that were that was there so I took in a number of the uh the sessions and uh basically for today's roundtable instead of going through two typical articles that I would do wanted to sort of talk about some of the things that I learned uh a lot of this is available in the public domain so feel free to definitely research it um, and then some just varying opinions that uh, kind of surfaced that were interesting that I sort of jotted down. So uh, I don't know if you want me to kind of just go through. Just just go and, and I'll, yeah, let, you just start talking. I'll cut you off when I want to okay. ask a question or give an opinion. Not that I ever have any opinions. but. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the, I'm, I'm going to kind of just go right from top to bottom here. But there was a lot of discussion about ESGs or environmental uh, social governance and the fact that uh, you know many banks are really tied to funding projects um, that are tied to those ESG goals. So there's a there's a whole kind of session on that, the importance of ESG, 
and uh, and again, just the financial aspect of moving some of those projects. Are there clear, you know, do they talk about clear metrics? Like, you know, what does it mean to measure? Because that's that's one of the bugaboos, isn't it? Like, you know, how do we? What what? It's nice to say that you see it in print in the in the newspaper all the time, but you know, aside from defining the acronym, what does that really mean? Yeah, I mean, I think. That, that that was discussed a little bit, and I think the problem is there's so many different metrics that people are using right now too, which is which is kind of a little bit makes it a little bit more difficult, right? Like you're right, what is environmental social governance, and how do you measure that, and how are the banks measuring that, and that wasn't really clear. I mean, there was a lot of discussion about. Um, you know that that it could that there's it's coming from various forms, and that you know the people are measuring it very differently. Um, and the fact that you know even from a carbon perspective, and this came out of COP26 as well, everybody is measuring the price of carbon differently as well, right? right. If you look at North America, if you look at Canada, if you look at the U.S., if you look at Europe. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Like that's that's one element that we um, you know are going to have to get better at at kind of uh, defining as a society for sure. And I think if we don't, I think the reason it's important. I mean, is is if we don't have a standard, preferably an international standard, then, you know, we just we we talk about it all the time on these shows. You know, how big do we draw the box, right? If you if you if you shrink the control volume for those process engineers amongst us, if you shrink the control volume enough, everything looks like it hits the ESG goals, right? But then if you and 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 you know, if you if you make it big enough, oh, man, you might get into a lot of, you know, social or, or governance issues. But like it's so you, you got to have a I think some standards are are, are, are would be beneficial and, and level the playing field across technologies and projects and opportunities. So, yeah, um, totally agree. Uh, my next note or point, I put a big asterisk next to because I, I got pretty excited. Actually, I don't remember who said it, uh, who unfortunately was presenting this, but um uh, essentially, the EU's perspective is that decarbonization of their natural gas grid is cheaper than electrifying everything. And apparently, BC has a similar outlook. So I got really excited with that because, you know, as as our listeners know who are, you know, listening in often to our show, we've talked a lot about electrification versus the thermal kind of, you know, side of things. And the fact that there's been a lot of emphasis on the electrification of our grid uh, and, and of, uh, you know, industry. Um, and so the fact that, you know, they're talking about the natural gas or that thermal piece having a big place, I thought was was quite interesting. And obviously, you know, the fact that Fortis BC, um, just, you know, from a Canadian content perspective, um, has a similar outlook, I think is is quite evident in terms of the fact that they're obviously buying a lot of the RNG that, you know, whether it's RNT, uh, Ontario that's injecting, the, you know, gas, renewable natural gas that gets cleaned up from wastewater treatments or landfills or AD facilities, you know, into the grid, they're, they're kind of, you know, indicating to the market that that's a big, big deal, right? Yeah, and that's a tough one. And I, I was there somebody there from Fortis? Uh, there was I'm trying to remember here I do not think there was at this particular uh, conference there was at the bio value of biogas west conference yes that I attended the week before uh but I don't think at IPSA okay yeah no there's there's an individual from Fortis that I've at a director level that I've heard in a conference before a webinar and really really articulate about this particular topic um and it requires that level of articulation right It, it is a 
a topic uh, that is multifaceted, whereas electrification is pretty simple, right? Like yeah. you know, electricity, everybody gets it. And on the heels of wind and solar and electric vehicles, like it's just, why don't we just keep going down that path? It's easy, right? And it's it's harder to get people to understand the Ontario's math, for example, 25,000 megawatts of electricity infrastructure, 85,000 megawatts of natural gas infrastructure, and the ramifications of, of what that, you and I get it, but it, it is a it it is a more challenging story to tell, um, and and hopefully, it it can be articulated to the policymakers such that they understand and drive policy that that lines up with that. Because if not, you know, it's like we we're looking at a couple projects right now where they want to electrify some pretty big boilers, and we're talking hundreds of megawatts of electrical infrastructure. It's just bizarre. It's it's yeah. You no. Know, but people want to look at it. It's easy to understand, right? So yeah, yeah, you're right. Cool. That's that's exactly it. Easy to understand. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, the other piece that was kind of interesting. This was a general opinion, actually, from a lot of the big companies like Capital Power, Transalta, uh, came out. I'm sure from maybe Bruce Power, actually, to some extent as well. Um, but there's a lot of general uncertainty on the technologies that will need to be used after 2030. So people feel in general that they have a pretty good understanding of what technologies exist to get them from where we are today to the 2030 mark. Now, let's not forget that everybody has a little bit of a different goal here, right? Some people have claimed that they're going to be or have the goal rather that they're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. And others have suggested that, like Transalta, for example, that they're going to be 2050. So many people are saying they know what they need to do to get to the 2030 mark, but they're a little bit uncertain about some of the technologies that might actually get invented and or used beyond the 2030 mark. So just an example, this is Transalta's take. Transalta's take is that for 2021 plus, <clears throat> they're going to be using wind and solar as technologies. Uh, for 2025 plus, long duration batteries. 2030 plus, large scale energy storage. And uh, hydrogen then comes in the mix for 2030 plus. But mm. if there's anything else, like what was interesting is Transalta doesn't seem to have the big focus on carbon capture, utiliz utilization and storage, or otherwise known mm. as CCUS. Uh, whereas Capital Power, for example, uh, they are doing a pre-feed study right now on CC CCUS um, that they're hoping to actually implement from a project's perspective in 2026, between 2026 and 2027. They do uh, indicate that they're going to be net zero by 2050. So it was just it was interesting to hear that because I didn't I wasn't really thinking about it from that perspective. I thought, you know, everybody's got. There's all these different costs or all of these different technologies that are surfacing and whether it's solar PV, wind, um, hydroelectric, nuclear, like there's so much good discussion happening on a lot of those technologies. I figured that they would just, the adoption would just sort of continue. Mm. And those are, were some of the technologies that would, you know, be implemented even beyond 2030. But it sounds like there's a little bit of, uh, um, discussion around that and whether, you know, there's going to be new other technologies surfacing. Right. Well, I think 
you know, we just heard on the, the re- recent podcast that we did that, you know, solar PV really only took off in 2010, right? Yeah. So that's 10 years ago. We're talking about, and, and look at how massive the transformation has been. You're talking now about 10 years out. I mean, you're right. It, 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 I think a lot of those folks are wise to kind of hold some of that future stuff lightly. Um, I think it also depends on, you know, if you and I both uh, have to go to the Pearson Airport, um, you can get there earlier than I can because you're starting at a different location than I am. And I think that's right. true for a lot of these transitions is if you're, you know, if you have a head start, um, y- you can you can set different targets, you can get to different targets earlier. Whereas if you are, um, you know, if you are starting from a very carbon intensive base, then you have to set your targets out further, right? Um, yep. But it begs the question, you know, do we get to net zero and then stop or, you know, or or do we go to net negative, I guess, would be the right. correct right. term. Right. And, yeah. and maybe that's where those, you know, I think for us, folks like us and for our clients and those in the industry, it's this um, this Jim, Jim Collins expression of, you know, preserve the core and stimulate progress. Right. So you know, what's what's our core and then always be trying to figure out what's coming, what's next. I mean, we, we're, we're all, you know, hot on the collar about solar thermal around here these days. Uh, obviously, RNG in the last 18 months, biomass, like how do we continue to evolve and develop and and, and be, be looking down the horizon and studying the technology readiness level, what's coming. So, um, but that is a that's a really astute observation that people are not aligned yet on the on the technology yeah. solutions right yeah, yeah wow. exactly but but then so what's interesting about that is um again i can't remember who was presenting this piece because i just kind of jotted down some quick notes for this uh, for today's uh, episode here but uh france is developing more nuclear reactors and apparently the nuclear will be doubled by 2050 hmm. so so to, from france's perspective they're like no nuclear all the way like this is what we need to do to get to that you know net zero so let's let's just go nuclear right i'm sure there's other technologies that they're building in their kind of portfolio but they seem to be putting a big emphasis on nuclear so that was kind of interesting um something else that was interesting was with regards to hydrogen so for the most part it seems that people think that this is a longer term play it's not something that's going to be maybe within the next five years maybe it's the next 10 or 15 plus you know years um the thought process and there was a lot of discussion around you know electrolyzers and you know the cost of water and you know Mm -hmm. the 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 um the guest who was who was talking about the subject was like no water is cheap power is expensive and depending on what we do with our grid if we start to electrify more more of everything and with the adoption of electric cars and you know everything else that's coming down the pipeline that could make power even more expensive depending on what you know how we're getting that power so the the thought process was that um you know it's 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 the electricity component that is that is definitely driving uh the overall cost of hydrogen and um somebody else said hydrogen will be a will have a small role in electrification but will have a large role overall Mm. that was the kind of the way they they were looking at it say that again that 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 was good hydrogen uh will have a small role in electrification but a large role overall Mm. so you know what what does that mean you can take it for you know that quote um you know it could mean things like chp it could mean the conversion of you know thermal processes that will then be able to accept 
you know, hydrogen gas and in, in through a pipe through the pipeline, whether it's boilers that are converted or, you know, whatever it might be. So that was kind of interesting. And I wonder, um, I, w- I wonder as I look out to our parking lot, as you know, I'm now a pickup truck driver. And like, as we look at the vehicle world, like, I, I'm not sure. I don't know how I'd feel about driving an electric pickup, but but a hydrogen pickup, I don't know. There's and that's just totally between my two ears, right? Like that's just totally made up, you know, decision making. But I I think as the vehicles get bigger, I, I think there might be a that that some of what I've been reading is that might be the breakpoint from a vehicle perspective is obviously CNG, which comes from RNG, is 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 where we're at today. But then where does hydrogen fit in? Uh, in yeah. terms of because on a dollar on an energy basis on a dollar per unit of energy transportation fuels are way more expensive than um, you know stationary fuels right so. yeah yeah and I think like you know when you when you well whether it's your truck or if it's uh, you know transport trucks driving across the country the 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 fact is that yes even with these superchargers electric cars can be charged in a much shorter you know period of time I think the shortest is something like. 30 minutes or something like this now. Um, but who's got 30 minutes in a way to like wait around, especially if you're making money off of driving, right? So you think of hydrogen and yes, it's still, you still have that fuel cell piece, right? That's tied in, but it's that, it's as close as you're going to get to a gasoline pump or a diesel pump right. in terms of that refuel uh, time, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to, to me, that's, that's quite important. Um, the other piece that was really interesting, um, and and I I had not thought of it this way, was the role of subsidies on these various technologies. Mm. And my initial thought was, you know, coming from, you know, CEM and and initially within Ontario, working within the Ontario market and the CHP side, I firsthand witnessed the decrease in CHP activity the moment that the PSUI incentives or process system upgrade initiative basically vanished. And you could see that because the paybacks, because the PSUI program was, you know, basically funding up to up to 40% of a project, the moment that that went away, and yes, there's a bit of a carbon story, obviously, in Ontario that plays into this, but the moment that went away and paybacks changed from, for example, four years to almost eight year, nine years, you know, it, it scared people off a little bit. And so I was thinking, oh, no, you're going to need government subsidies to actually get all of these projects to move. But the, the 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 opinion of one of the speakers was that that ro- the role of subsidies that like they should only be put in place to address market failures and you need to allow technologies to compete for cost parity mm. so instead of putting the focus on a few technologies which could hinder this cost parity process let industry do what they need to do and let it do let them do what they know how to do best which is all compete against one another. So you have carbon capture utilization and storage competing with solar PV, competing with wind, competing with battery storage, competing with solar thermal. And so I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective, but that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I think the counterpoint that might come up, particularly from the solar industry, would be, well, we wouldn't have moved down that cost production curve that we just talked about on our last podcast we wouldn't have come down that cost production curve without subsidies and incentives right so yeah. it's it's i'm no econ- economist but it's kind of a chicken and egg i think right yeah uh, yeah so but yeah it, it's i think it, it, it's on one hand government wants to move stuff forward on the other hand i agree they shouldn't be picking winners um and and subsidies certainly pick winners for sure 
Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, another note that I have here is that uh, Bruce Power, I think they plan to be net zero by 2027. Hopefully I'm not getting that date wrong. They're really focused on backup diesel gen sets at this point. The fact that they say. eliminate <laughs> yes. that because uh, because that's really where their their emissions are really coming from from the backup that, piece. That's like going back to our Pearson Airport. You know, Bruce Power is sitting in the self <laughs> pickup lot. Like, come on, guys. That's like, right. It should yeah. be tomorrow. Like, it should be tomorrow. Yeah. Like, so anyway. so what's interesting though is they actually plan to replace these backup diesel gen sets with SMRs. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, we've talked a lot about small modular reactors and uh, their place in the market. And so that was kind of interesting because there there was a little bit of discussion about SMRs, but they were kind of the one that was putting a little more focus on it than some of the other presenters. Sure. So that was that was yeah. interesting. Um, and then two other points and then we can we'll we'll hop on to, I guess, our face off. But uh, I think the one of the bigger takeaways that I at least took away from it that I think everybody is struggling with is how do we do this by remaining, but remaining cost competitive in the market. Like they, they realize that there is a premium to some of these, these technologies at the, at this point, right. Whether it's carbon capture utilization storage, whether it's SMRs, whether it's, you know, batteries or wind and solar there, you know, there's some pretty expensive technologies out there and how do they implement these technologies so that they can get to carbon neutrality by 2030 or 2050, but yet remain competitive in the market and make sure they're providing clients with the resiliency that really everybody is, you know, right. deserves essentially and is aiming for. So right. that was, uh, that was another interesting point. And then the last one, um, I'm just going to flip screens here for a second so I can just make sure I'm jotting down or I'm noting the uh, the right people that uh, if I can find it, hopefully I can. Yeah, the last session was a keynote discussion, which was called Bridging the Partisan Divide. The moderator was Lori Williams, a political scientist from Mount Royal University. The keynote was Brad Wall, which was the 14th premier of Saskatchewan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was cool. He was it was a lot of fun to see him. Uh, our, our one of our friends from one of our construction partners was trying to get a selfie with him. It was kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> and then the Honorable uh, Thomas Mulcair, from, which is the former leader of the opposition, oh. visiting professor, University of Montreal and political commentator. So there was a lot of really wow. good discussion between those two. I, yeah. I don't know why, truthfully, upset left it to the last uh, in terms of, you know, because because by that point, at least 50% of the people had literally folded up their booths and had gone home. Right. Um, and I found it to be very interesting to hear the opinions of both of these individuals, because in some cases they were aligned in other cases, they were yeah. very right. different. Cool. Uh, but the thing that they did agree on was that government in general should step aside and let industry do what it basically needs to do. All they should be involved with from a, from a government perspective perspective is setting the basic parameter of where we as a society or as Canada need to be and then let industry take over and we'll, they're, they're confident that industry would be able to solve the problem itself without having government uh, interaction. So that was interesting. I wonder how much, I wonder how much of that is shaped by the, the audience and the, and the venue, right? Like would that, yeah. would, would that vet, would that same statement have been made in Ontario at APRO? For example, right? Or yeah. is it, is it, hey, get out of our way, government? That's an Alberta thing, and so that's the message they kind of have to carry. Yeah. Um. Or, or, or is it, you know, from both of them, is it an anti-liberal sentiment? Who knows? Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for uh, bringing that, that those learnings and those observations back for, 
for me and and for our for our listeners uh some good perspectives so uh speaking of uh of having freedoms and having uh you know um less uh, government control let's uh transition to our uh face off um mark welcome hi guys how are you good, good mark how are you I'm well, thanks. You, so you, yeah, you don't have the you don't have the handlebar mustache going on anymore. No, I'm like a chameleon. I switch it up so often. It's just <laughs> you never know what you're gonna get, right? So I do have a little bit of stuff happening, but not uh, not so much. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Maybe next month I'll do something different. Just just the beard and no mustache, maybe. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> the, the Mennonite beard. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, again, going way out in left field here, away from what you guys are already discussing, and um, yeah, I guess the the topic is uh, firearms and uh, uh, owning firearms. You know, um, should people be allowed to own firearms, and if so, why and why not? So um, we'll flip cool. here. I think Lisa, you're up for uh, choosing heads okay, or tails. Well, I'll, I'll do with my regular, which is heads, and it's tails. Okay. Um, I will go pro. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Wow. Interesting. Um, shall I start? Yeah. 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 Go, right, go right ahead. Um, so I, first of all, even though I picked pro, um, I am not necessarily uh, pro. I am kind of, I, it's not an issue I think about a lot. I don't actually own a gun. I, I don't think I've ever even fired a, a firearm. So, well, I I, I should I clarify. I uh, I don't know if this qualifies, but my son came in as I was getting ready this morning, and he had a new Nerf gun. So I did <laughs> I did fire that. Um, so yeah, I fired many Nerf guns in my day. But you know, I think um, I think there's there's a role in uh, you know for for guns, obviously in law enforcement and. Um, you know, obviously that the police have that as a, as a means by which to control the population. Um, and I think there's some element of, 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 of having personal protection and, um, you know, kind of self-defense in, in your own home. Right. And, and being able to, you know, God forbid there's somebody coming in your house or whatever, being able to defend yourself, uh, in some way, shape or form is, is one, uh, reason to, um, to own guns and, um, you know, I, I think there's a uh, an argument to be made that uh, you know a lot of people love to own a, own a gun for uh, for hunting purposes, right? It's a or or for sporting purposes, right? Like there's lots of you know competitions of sport um, that uh, that require a gun. So I think there's a lot of you know practical applications, um, and I think there there has to be you know if there's enough of a, a groundswell of of owner owning guns and operating guns. Then you're going to have good control. You should have, you know, good regulation of it. Um, you know, and and not everybody has to own it, but if you have enough of a critical mass, then you then you're going to have the controls that you need. Um, you need around it. So um, those are the reasons I think it's good to own a gun. Wow, that All was right. probably my, that was probably as I was going along. I'm thinking, and I even did some prep. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll reserve my commentary. At least you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm trying to think. I have fired three types of guns in my lifetime. One is a water gun. <laughs> oh, good one. Yes. The second one is a Nerf gun. And the third one is a pellet gun. Uh, I have been to Vegas many, many times. And I've had colleagues uh, from a previous life who wanted me to go to the gun range with them. And uh, it, it just didn't happen. Uh, I, I'm not truthfully very interested in guns myself. 
Um, and I think that there's a number of reasons not to own one. And I think now that I have uh, one little girl uh, at home and another one on the way, one of the things that I, a boy on the way this time, uh, one of the things that I think about is guns really getting in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, which include children, right? Like you might have a licensed gun owner, they bring their gun home, maybe it's, it could be for hunting, it could be for personal protection, and yet the kid finds it and all of a sudden, you know, does something unfortunate to themselves or to somebody else. And I think that that, not just that, but guns, the ownership of guns in general can lead to a higher risk of violence. So, you know, when I think about where we used to live, which was uh, in North Etobicoke in uh, an area called Rexdale, many people will know of it. it uh, if you go north of the Humber, it's very dangerous. If you go south of the Humber, not so bad, but you still wouldn't even want to work, walk around at night with your dog, the south, you know, in the south of the Humber area. So we actually, as a family, decided before we were having children to move to Oakville, partly for that reason, because the amount of gun violence that was starting to occur, mainly north of the Humber, was pretty significant. And we're talking about literally innocent people who were getting shot in, I'm trying to remember the... Uh, the grocery store parking lot there, it was like a Freshco or something like that. Uh, but so I, I think that's, that's a big, big, big uh, issue. Um, and I think, you know, generally speaking, when you look at, and I have to be careful here when I'm, I'm talking about geographies, but north and south of the border, I will just say, um, you know, you end up with often higher crime rates, unfortunately. And studies have shown that areas that promote the ownership of guns or the right to bear arms experience higher crime rates. And I think as a society, uh, you know, we really need to continue doing our best to reduce crime rates. And I think that uh, within Canada and uh, certainly Ontario, we've done a pretty good job uh, despite some of the areas, like I mentioned, that are still, you know, pretty targeted or, or unfortunately have a lot of people that have been exposed or carry guns. Um, the other piece that a lot of people I don't think realize is that the, when you, when you have, um, you know, when you have access to guns, typically there's also apparently an increased uh, risk of suicide. Mm. You know, people don't think necessarily through the full, you know, their, their, the full behavior. And so as a result, if they have access to a gun, uh, it's something that they might contemplate and, and, you know, react to pretty quickly. Um, and then I think the ownership of guns, generally speaking, makes uh, the community fairly nervous. Right. Like if you think if if you don't know, Mark, if I'm, you know, uh, maybe I honk my horn at you. Right. Because, my God, you were just what did you do? You pulled a Yui in the middle of this intersection or the middle of this road. And like, you know, you almost caused me to crash with my two kids or a kid in the back of the car. Right. I honk my horn. And next thing you know, you're pointing a gun at me like that gets a little bit, you know, it's a drastic, it's a drastic argument. But at the same time, it does happen. Uh, and it, it, that story is real, unfortunately. Um, and then I think just the right to carry firearms can increase, you know, chances of unintended shootings, uh, especially when people are under, uh, you know, the influence or intoxicated. Um, so for all those reasons, I am anti-gun. <laughs> well, I, I know this is supposed to be a competitive, uh, initiative, but, uh, I don't know if we've had this before, but I will, con I will concede even before Mark weighs in because, uh, <laughs> I, I could, I, I picked pro, uh, but I, I couldn't get, I can't get behind any of my arguments really. And, and, and full transparency to our American listeners. I, 
have a lot of um, respect for the Constitution, and I understand that it's a, uh, a Second Amendment right to bear arms, and and I have no cultural appreciation for what that means. So I, as a as a Canadian, I really can't comment on it from an American perspective. But um, yeah, I'm I'm, really, I, I, I'm with Lisa on this one. I was so, surprised. Take the pro. I was like, oh wow, he's setting me up for winning this. <laughs> well, like you so say, you didn't have any prep time, so I thought, okay, well, I'll try to. You know, I know you love your prep time, so. And the two the two main um, firearms, actually, when the Second Amendment, um, you know, was born in 1791, were like muskets and like flintlock pistols. So, right. um, so obviously, yeah, the right to bear arms that is, you know, they're obviously their right. But these days, the uh, the, te- the way technology is, and and some of the firearms and the power of some of these weapons are, yeah. you know, slightly different from 1791. So, as it is an amendment, maybe we will see that happen one day. But don't don't um, hold your, don't hold your breath, Charles. But here's here's another, <laughs> here's another surprise. I am a licensed gun owner. No way. Uh, cool. Yeah. So for hunting purposes only. So okay. um, I, although I do agree with everything Lisa said, and I do agree with some of the stuff that Matt said, I I can't even pick a winner. I got to sort of like tread the line here because, okay. um, because for, me, it's, for me, it's strictly hunting and sport, obviously. Um, right. And I don't own anything super high powered. It's just, you know, I, hold, I have a rifle and, and a shotgun, but um Anyways, yeah. So I, I learned that. something new about you today, yeah, Mark, because I had yeah. no idea that you hunted. So yeah. when our uh, if if Mr. Dan White is uh, is listening, uh, when he comes up hunting, we'll have to have you guys uh, connect yeah. so you guys can go together. <laughs> and I'm fairly fairly new, only the past like few years. So it's it's not like I've been doing it my whole life. So I'm sort of learning as as I go as well. But um, yeah, but I do agree with everything you said, and both of you actually, and, and partly. So I can't really pick a winner. I'm going to walk the line on this one. All right. <laughs> I, I, I conceded, so Lisa gets the, the win. This oh, okay. Well, by default, I guess. Fun as always. Thank you both uh, for for the the good discussion, Lisa. Thank you for the notes and news from Ipsa, and uh, we'll be back together again in a week or so. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Bye. Everybody. Bye.